Star Trek short treks are over, but we're just getting started here on Post Show Recaps, and it's been a fun six tiny episodes over on CBS All Access, and here to break down everything that happened in these bite-sized nuggets of wholesome goodness that were all meat, just like a scallop. Please welcome the guy that's always on my level, Mr. Mike Bloom. Just do you like eggplant? I, eggplant's fantastic. It's 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 delicious. I'm uh, I'm lukewarm on eggplant personally. I love vegetables. That one's a little too squishy for me personally. It has a very tribble like I guess texture to it. Not as hairy, but definitely as squishy. But God help this planet if it reproduces as quickly as tribbles does, especially if it gets any human DNA introduced into it. That it raises so many questions. I feel like it's a whole like afternoon stuck in a turbo lift worth of questions you have just raised right there. <laughs> Oh my goodness, Jess, we have so much to talk about. We literally have three months worth of Star Trek material to talk about, even though it amounts to, what, probably an hour le- or less of material in total? Yeah, I think some of the, they, they varied in length. I think the longest one was about 15 minutes and the shortest one was seven minutes. So mm-hmm. yeah, if, if you had an evening, the binge watch on this is pretty short. Hell, if you had an evening, you had like a t- some time at the gym and some Wi-Fi, you could probably like bang these out while you're on the elliptical. Yeah, you could burn 300 calories and then you would have watched all of the all the short treks and you would have cut away at that New Year's resolution that you made. Well, I guess before we get into it, uh, I figured, you know, there are people who are probably tuning in. They recently found our Star Trek only podcast at postshowrecaps.com slash Star Trek. Subscribe if you haven't and leave some ratings and reviews, especially as the season starts. Shameless plug right there. Uh, And I'm sure they either haven't seen the short treks they're trying to figure out what is a short trek or is this a regular star trek series uh should i be checking these out on cbs all access so i guess should we give like a quick blanket statement as to what short treks are and where we've seen them before yeah this is the interesting thing that i think i have to keep reminding myself of is this we are standing in the threshold of a new entry point to what mightn't be even the entire Star Trek universe. Like this could be somebody's very first Star Trek experience that they're about Mm. to have um, would be Picard, which is launching in just a little bit over a week as we're recording this. And to me, like we've been so immersed in it, you and I covering the second season of discovery and then summarizing the last batch of short, short treks. It's like, we are up to speed on it. And I have to remind myself, not everybody is. Some people are just tuning in now because they want to watch Picard, whether they're old school TNG fans or perhaps not even Star Trek people at all. So I think it is really a useful exercise to explain that the short treks are basically what five to ten years ago we would have been calling webisodes. <laughs> yes, uh, I, unfortunately, they have not earned as many Emmy accolades as, for example, the office spinoff, The Accountants. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, these are basically like five to 15 minute shorts that really just especially this season, because we're talking about the second season of Short Treks, just really 
cast a wide net, a Tholian web, basically, uh, of, you know, genre and tone and content. Uh, we did have, this is again, the second season of Short Treks. We had the first season of Short Treks back when Alex Kurtzman became the Star Trek czar of CBS uh, between seasons one and two of Discovery. I feel like this was sort of like one of his big ideas. They came up with four, about 10 to 15 minute Short Treks right before Star Trek Discovery season two. As Jess talked about last time, uh, they all had canonical implications into the season, and we weren't completely sure how they would. You know, there were stories around Tilly. There was a story that was like Saru's origin story. There was something featuring Harry Mudd, and then there was one that took place way, way in the future that almost looks like a Black Mirror episode, and we had no idea what was happening. Now that we know exactly what, or we think, what short treks are, I would say that just across the board, before we get into any detailed analysis of it it feels like now that they sort of have laid the groundwork as to what a short trek could be they really started having fun in that space and it produced six very very different shorts to talk about i mean the sheer amount of imagination that went into crafting these six short treks it's really astonishing and it really highlights the vastness of the universe that they have to play around in and it's not surprising that we saw them kind of dabble in just about every genre possible to dabble in, but also to visit different iterations of the franchise in some really fresh ways. And the thing that it, that has my head spinning really when it comes to these short treks is just how many canonical implications the first set had. And then watching like this vastly varied and different and interesting and imaginative bunch of shorts and thinking what am i supposed to pull out of here it's like it's like homework like what what's the canonical implication do i have to guess it do i have to figure out what it is and that's really hard yeah and but it, at the same time i feel like it's also pieces that can kind of stand on their own without canonical implications you know i do feel like the first season because it was so tied into these discovery characters to the point where three out of the four of them were focused on characters we saw in discovery you couldn't necessarily watch them and you know again be that person that you sort of alluded to in that scenario of like hey i haven't watched star trek since tng i'm coming back who the hell is cadet tilly it's a little bit of a a tougher sort of hurdle to overcome and getting immersed in this world as opposed to these which sort of have more of a a base knowledge uh you know the greatest generation which is one of my favorite star trek podcasts out there posits this sort of idea that star trek is a place this idea that it's really like a, a wholly developed world where you could have something like the infamous lower decks episode which is soon to be its own animated series where it's not necessarily focusing on our main characters but it still is you know inherently trek because it's embodying these values that fill out a literal entire universe and i feel like we got that in spades here and yeah i, I don't want to you know run ourselves too ragged trying to guess the canonical implications of it i'm sure we will because it's us and specifically because one very specific one is going to have very recent implications <laughs> with something that we're going to be talking about even in the next couple of weeks uh but i would say just as standalone pieces if you wanted to show someone like hey this is you know star trek in the in the 21st century or i guess post enterprise the sort of revival of it all these are good representations yeah i would definitely agree with that i think and I don't want to go too far down this road because I feel like this is probably its own podcast series, if not its own 
podcast episode. And I also don't want to anger the fanboys, but something I think Star Trek always struggled with that Star Wars did very well was have this sense of place as a universe where you could play around. And there are so many different Star Wars properties with different feels and different different sort of ambiances and different styles of storytelling. And especially now that Disney has acquired them and with the Mandalorian being the thing that everybody is talking about right now, I think the Star Wars universe, especially in recent years, has been able to make that playground work for them in some really awesome ways. And it's kind of fun to see Star Trek kind of getting up on that level as well. Yeah, especially covering so many different genres. You know, we're going to get into it. And I would say that the Escape Artist, which was the big mud episode from the first season, was probably, you know, the biggest deviation in terms of tone where they were doing cutaways and flashbacks, which we usually didn't see even in the most comical trek that we had seen, you know, over 50 years. But I think, again, they used that as sort of a launching point to really go in a bunch of different directions. I guess we could say at the top, uh, before we get into spoilers, just thumbs up if people want to check out Short Trek Season 2. We, we think it's a good watch across the board, right? Thumbs up, for sure. And I think no matter what your experience with the Star Trek universe is, if you are at all favorable towards it, I think the Short Treks are not a waste of your hour. Yeah, it's exactly. Again, like it's only an hour. You could spend an hour watching much worse television. This will at least keep your interest peaked. And if it doesn't, then just wait 10 minutes and like any sort of Seattle type of weather, it's going to change once more. Well, that's the beautiful thing about having so many different ideas in tiny packages is they don't all have to appeal to you. And again, it goes back to you invoked Black Mirror. I think it's it's very much like that. If you If you don't like one, just skip ahead and watch the next one. You'll probably like that one a little bit better. Yeah, and uh, definitely only one really had a, a real depressing ending, and it was not the one that I think any of us expected at the outset. That's true, and I have I have a lot of thoughts about that, but that's probably, we're going to have to save the most depressing and heart-wrenching for last, of course. Yes, unfortunately so. And, you know, the, the plotting of this as well, I, I still think it's a little odd that they're dropping, like, these little nuggets, almost like they're, you know, breadcrumbs trying to lead us to some sort of content box to trap us under when Picard premieres on the 23rd with releasing these 10-minute things every month. This time, they did a weird thing where they had, what, like, four months and six episodes, so they did... Q&A on October 5th, and then The Trouble with Edward was then the 10th, so within a week. And then, you know, we had one, Ask Not, in November. Then we had two on the same day in December, and then we had one in January. So I'm assuming they're going to keep going with this. They should. I think it's a fun opportunity to flex their muscles, but their release plan still is fascinating, to quote a character that we're going to be speaking about very soon. Yeah, it, it certainly it is that, but I think also... I would guess that CBS All Access also probably didn't give a lot of thought to the release dates because I think they they understand that they're not they're not the all-encompassing content platform that some of the other competitors are yet at this point. And I think there are a lot of people out there that will buy CBS All Access for 3 months to watch Discovery and then cancel it and come back in a year when it comes back. Um, or people, it's kind of the same people that like buy it for the Big Brother feeds and then drop it at the end of the summer. And all this other content is there incidentally, but people don't seem to care as much when it dropped. 
Mm, yeah, that's true. So if anything, if you log on for your month or your three months or your full year to watch CBS content, then you'll be able to at least have a backlog of short treks, especially if you're checking it out now uh, until, I guess, the be- assumingly the end of 2020 or the beginning of 2021 when season three will come inevitably rolling around, especially since we'll talk about this next time. But c- if we already have a season two of Picard coming up, I can imagine a season three of short treks has also been sort of loosely greenlit. One would have to imagine. But at the same time, it's also this is optional viewing. Like this is very, very much um, this is recreational viewing. Uh, If if your vocation is watching Picard or watching Discovery, you don't have to watch these. And I feel like I would resent it deeply if I came into Discovery or if I came into Picard feeling like because I did not watch what amounts to a web extra I don't understand what's going on. And I think they came very dangerously close to that in Discovery last season with a couple Mm -hmm. of the episodes really fleshing out things that didn't make any sense otherwise. And so I I kind of feel like these should feel very self-contained. And if there's an Easter egg in there that kind of deepens our understanding as we go further, then great. But I hope they don't set that tone where you have to have watched them. Right. And I think what helps that is as we get into these is, you know, the first three are I know there's been a very understandable tsunami of support for a Pike number one Spock eventual spinoff series. I feel like these three together can sort of be like the backdoor pilot for those. Uh, the two animated ones are linked to the Discovery universe, but they're not, as you said, sort of describing the current climate of Discovery. And the last one is a surprising segue into Picard, and that's probably, again, the biggest connection to that canon, but that only happens within the last, like, 30 seconds. Yeah, it's it's true. And it's and if you weren't paying super close attention, you might have even missed it. Right, exactly. Patrick Stewart makes a, an appearance on a big screen, but has no lines. So you, if you had your eyes away and you were waiting for Patrick Stewart's lovely British baritone to come, you know, droning over your speakers, you wouldn't be hearing it. And therefore, you might have missed the connection it's going to have. But we'll be sure to get into it. Yeah, we'll we'll get into that. But I think I think we're probably just about ready to start diving into these episode by episode, Mike. Um so I want to give out one final spoiler warning. If you have not seen the short treks yet, stop this now and go watch them and then come back because we're about to dissect them and break down all of the major plot points. And so if you have not seen them, that's going to be a fairly joyless exercise for you. Yes. Speaking of joyless, should we get into our first segment considering the at least apparently joyless character uh, or at least, you know, a different version of him that gets the focus in this first short trek Q&A. Yeah, I, I guess I guess we got to do it, Mike. And we got to we got to ask all of the questions because this is our only opportunity to ask every question that was raised by this short trek. Spock's first day on the Enterprise. Gene Roddenberry, who would have thought that he'd be able to, you know, produce characters that could then have them you know, resonate so many years later that they would not only revive the character, but talk about his first day as an ensign, a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed ensign. Okay, Mike, there there are so many places in this episode where I thought, this is like a fanfic. This is like somebody went into the old Usenet archive of Star Trek fanfiction and just pulled something out and filmed it. 
you see, so you think uh, any all like the Spock number one shippers, like they were able to get one in under the door of Alex Kurtzman, and he's like, you know what? I think we should publish one of these. And you know, somebody out there wrote their fan fiction with that idea in mind that someday the universe would come calling and say, we want to make this canon. But I, and I don't really, I, I wasn't going to make this my very first point that I had to make about this short trek, but I'm just going to say it. There's a certain variety of fan fiction where all you do is lift out the Gilbert and Sullivan and you drop something else in there. And <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying that it's the pacing, the dialogue, the setup the contrivances to put these two people together in one place where nobody else is watching them and nobody else will know what went on. Most fan fiction that I read back in the day led to a very specific activity taking place under those circumstances. And it wasn't, it wasn't 19th century operettas. Yeah. But then it wouldn't be titled Q and a would be like titled some sort of random lyric from a B side, my chemical romance song, you know, if it was truly within that realm. Yeah. I'll admit. Uh, so I watched this actually when it aired the first time back in October. And then I watched it again, obviously to get myself abreast, uh, for this podcast. And I was not a huge fan of it the first time. Uh, you know, I, I, I liked obviously love with Anton Mount as Captain Pike. Enjoyed Ethan pa- Ethan Peck as Spock. Had no opinion on Rebecca Romaine as number one because we barely saw her in season two of Star Trek Discovery. So, you know, I was intrigued in focusing on this. Uh, but I guess when I rewatched it again and I focus less on, like you said, the, uh, the, the 60s sitcom aspects of it all and focused it more as a number one character piece, I actually enjoyed it a lot more because I feel like this is what I personally wanted when I heard that Rebecca Romaine was coming to Star Trek Discovery. We barely saw any qualities out of her, aside from what Pike told us about her. And now we're finally seeing it happen. We're seeing her own sort of personal philosophy as to how to lead. We see her own le- little weird quirks, you know, the the way she, what happens when she becomes unbuttoned, uh, how she throws herself headfirst into a situation, especially when it means revealing herself personally. I thought from that perspective, I enjoyed it, even if the plot's a little hackneyed. Yeah, maybe. But I felt like maybe it's just because the idea of Rebecca Romaine as number one, who is, you know, number one is a character from the very early Star Trek canon with a very you know, a very important legacy. You know, that was the very, that was the unaired pilot of Star Trek featured number one um, with Majel Barrett in the role. And she became such an important fixture of Star Trek after that. So that we're going back to the Pike and number one of it all. And that we're casting a heavyweight like Rebecca Romaine, who is amazing in almost everything she does. I guess maybe my hopes were too built up here. The few mm. little bits we got of her in Discovery made me think, yes, we need this spinoff. We need this series. But this character is not well developed. She's not terribly well written. And the attempts to give her depth and humanity just felt like they were throwing darts at a wall. Like, oh, what random little quirk should we give her? Oh, she'll be into this thing. And I really don't feel like I know her any better than I did at the beginning of it. Yeah, I do think her hypothesis is interesting. This idea of, okay, if you want to be a leader, 
keep your weirdness to yourself. Keep your freak flag folded away under your bed because you can't lead like that, which I feel like Star Trek history has made all of us fundamentally disagree with. Yeah. Right? I mean, look at someone like Jean-Luc Picard. Like, he has a weird hard-on for things like architecture and horse riding, and he is more than happy to let those quirks fly out because he knows that people are still going to respect him at the end of the day. People are not necessarily going to respond to, like, this hardened robot of a person. It's true. I think the humanity of the captain is what makes people believe and rally behind the captain. I think we kind of we delved into that quite a bit, I think, um, in the first season of Discovery. I think arguably with with Lorca as the kind of complicated creature that he was and you get people to break rules for him. And so to come to this idea that the captain can't be a person who relates to people on any other level. I mean, Voyager also you had Janeway who was I think more of that philosophy but also would struggle with it and had trouble Mm. like she needed to have those human connections because there was nobody at her level um because they were stranded in the middle of nowhere and she had to let those walls down every so often and it really i think when you have a character whose whole thing is they can't show you who they are that's gonna be hard to take a whole series of that And it makes the character much less believable. I know that you uh, have joked in the past about why, you know, in the 23rd, 24th century, people are obsessed with uh, pop culture from the 20th century. What do we think about pop culture from the 19th century? Because this is not the first time we have dabbled in Gilbert and Sullivan, Jess, in the Star Trek universe. And it is very interesting that these guys stood the test of time. Yeah, you I mean how often does Gilbert and Sullivan come up a hundred years after they were a thing? Yeah, I mean you'd have to imagine. I feel like it has to be taught in like Starfleet Academy, you know, like in school <laughs> when you when you have to like recite, you know, uh, the road not taken or like the Gettysburg Address. Because I mean, the other the one big example I can think of is in Star Trek Insurrection when they're able to, you know, when Data went rogue and Worf and Picard are able to like sort of keep him back on track um, by singing Gilbert and Sullivan here. It appears that they're both, you know, closeted Gilbert and Sullivan freaks, number one in Spock. Yeah, and that's also weird because, I mean, I guess Spock is half human and maybe Amanda had a big thing for it. But, you know, if you're growing up on Vulcan and we already know that Sarek has this very, I would say, almost a phobia of Earth culture. And we mm. saw him like blocking it from Spock and keeping Amanda from reading like Alice in Wonderland to him. So it's like Gilbert and Sullivan is considerably more earthy than Alice in Wonderland. And I it find it very hard to believe that this would be a core facet of Spock's identity either. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's got to be something they teach in Starfleet. And I know I'm already I would say this podcast dropped and we're 23 minutes into it. I would say 24 minutes after this podcast drops, I'm going to start getting people adding me on Twitter being like, how dare you? Gilbert and Sullivan are going to be timeless. And okay, I'm not disparaging them. They are, uh, as far as operettas are concerned, they are masters of form. They are masters of wordplay. It's great musically. It's catchy. It's fun. 
I don't see it being something that's as tip of everybody's tongue <laughs> as it seems to be in the Star Trek universe. But then again, I could be wrong. I'm sure Unlo- I'm sure the equivalent of me in the 1600s was like, yeah, that Shakespeare guy will move beyond that eventually. Yeah, to that point, maybe there's like a Gilbert and Sullivan 2 that's going to come up in the next like 200 years. So, you know, like they're going to bring it back in a new cool way. And that's why everybody knows the modern major general. It's like, uh, you know, uh, the new Spice Girls. Yeah. Or like when um, or like when a hip hop artist samples an old funk tune and then suddenly it's back in the consciousness like. Mm. I'm going to date myself by using a 30 year old example, but when everybody started listening to Super Freak again, when MC Hammer sampled it, I'm sure there's a mm. better recent example. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess speaking of Spock and poor Ethan Peck's, I would I would say you know I felt bad for his sort of like monotone singing voice, but I do remember that Spock still does have a history of singing. Again, going back to the much beleaguered Star Trek Five, I will never forget him <laughs> warbling out "Row, row, row your boat" while they're camping. Uh, but uh, we talked about uh, Rebecca Romain. Any thoughts about Ethan Peck as Spock, considering that you know? We saw him at the end of Discovery Season 2 back in the similar, the textbook Vulcan Bowl cut. He's do- pulling it off here as well. Granted, this is canonically or chronologically before the events of Discovery Season 2. But what, did, you, did you have any thoughts about what Ethan Peck brought here to this short? I thought it was a very Spocky Spock. Um, I thought I thought that the meditations on like his facial expression were interesting because that seems to be a very... De- big departure from the Spock that we know from the original series. Like right, he's supposed like, to be very the, inscrutable. And it's like, oh, you were smiling when we beamed you aboard. And it's like, oh, are we meant to believe that all of his Vulcan inscrutability was like beaten into him over his career in Starfleet? Because that doesn't make sense either. Right. Yeah. The, the Spock smirk. And we saw that, I think, in the Discovery Season 2 trailer as well. And yeah, to your point, I think that's the big discussion point around like what differentiates Ethan Peck's Spock from Nimoy Spock. And yeah, it really makes you think, OK, I guess did uh, working, you know, in these very hard missions on the Enterprise, did that sort of weather him down to where he does no longer uh, smirks at this idea of adventure? Is it just old news to him like it is number one at this point? I think I think it's a valid theory. I think it's 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 better than anything else I've been able to come with come up with. But I think it is a very I think it's hard to argue that Ethan Peck's Spock is a much warmer Spock than the Spock that we originally saw. Yeah. Speaking of which, I can imagine it probably got pretty hot in that turbo lift. Right. And not in the like salacious way. Yeah, I'm saying there's one scene you lift out the singing you put in something else and everything it it moves exactly the same way it's like the time that it's like the time that that one um pornography writer wrote a porn movie that was an like a lost episode of star trek the next generation but it just had porn in it and you could lift out the porn and it would be a real episode <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You could just take that one slow-mo shot of Spock grabbing number one around the waist when he tells her when she tells him to hoist him up and then just like make a video around that. And that's a new version of Q&A. Could we call it like TNA or something? Oh, 100 percent. There is not much you have to do to this to to make it into the kind of NC-17 fanfic that lurked about on Usenet in the late 90s. 
Yeah, absolutely. Do you have anything else you want to say about Q&A? I thought, I will say this is not my least favorite, but I would say probably bottom half. Again, I thought it was solid enough. I enjoyed at least what they were attempting to do with number one's character. Uh, And I think, you know, if this was sort of a a first way to kick off coverage of this new Enterprise, it could be worse. And it at least showcases uh, these new characterizations of characters we already know. Yeah, I mean, it definitely didn't make me want an Enterprise spinoff less. But I would say I I tend to agree with you. And it's very hard for me to rank all these just because they're so vastly different. And I think they're all, you know, they're all baseline successful at what they're trying to do. But yeah, this one isn't one that I'm going to go back and rewatch a hundred times. So I I would say in that regard, it's not one of my favorites. Um, I also, I found the, I found the, central premise of it that um, when it's your first day on a starship and you have the senior leadership in front of you, you should pepper them with questions until they're exhausted and don't want to look at you anymore. I found that a little iffy as well. Yeah, be the worst coworker ever and just consist- consistently ask questions while other people are trying to do stuff. Uh, but you know, I guess it brings up his inquisitory nature, though I do wonder, as we segue to the trouble with Edward, because I imagine, so this person, Lucero, Jess, if they're coming from the Enterprise, I'm assuming, was this Spock's predecessor? Does this short take place before the last one? I think that, well, I think relatively concurrently then, because if she left and they brought on somebody new, that was probably pretty seamless. So maybe they, they actually do happen concurrently. Yeah, I suppose so. And obviously, this all is going to predate the actual appearance of the Tribbles, because this is sort of like the Tribbles origin story when we find them in the infamous Trouble with Tribbles episode in TOS. But yeah, I guess this is sort of like a weird Rashomon way of looking, someone beaming off and someone beaming on to fill the same position. Yeah, I, I and I kind of love that. When you, when you juxtapose the two like that, that makes it a lot more interesting, I think. But I think we, I think this is a very good segue into The Trouble with Edward, and I have a lot to say about this episode. Yeah, this is when we really start getting into more of the like canonical Trek, again, because this has... I'm, I mean, could you call it an Easter egg if it's really the focus of the episode? Are we just calling it the Easter basket at that point? Well, this is the thing that makes me really worried, Mike, because we... Uh, because we ended up having so much of the previous set of short treks having actual bearings on the goings on of Discovery Season 2, this makes me really concerned that this is not the only reference to Tribbles we got in the short treks. Are we getting Tribbles in Discovery? Please let us not get Tribbles in Discovery. I don't think anybody was asking for that. Nobody was clamoring for it. Can we, can we just not? Well, because the last time we saw Tribbles chronologically was in the trouble with triples where it was that big laugh line at the end where they're like, well, we just beamed them onto the, with the Klingon. So it's their problem now. So, I mean, we are going thousands of years into the future. Maybe the triples have become like, I don't know, buff and like operating, uh, Android bodies or something to make them deadly weapons of, of, you know, terrorism. I'm not entirely sure, but, you know, maybe this j- could just be because, you know, this is directed by Daniel Gray Longino, written by Graham Wagner. I don't know the Trek credits that either one of those have. So something tells me this is more so like two guys coming in saying, hey, this is sort of a fun origin story that I came up with. It's if Judd Apatow, you know, did an episode of Star Trek about the Tribbles. 
That's true. And I, I, I don't want to be that guy, Mike, because that guy is going to be adding us relentlessly throughout our podcast if past experience is any indication. But um, I think chronologically, the last time we actually saw Tribbles was at the end of the Deep Space Nine episode, Trials and Tribulations. Oh, you're right about that. I forgot that they made a return appearance. And they they have kind of a laugh line at the end of that one where they are carting wheelbarrowfuls of Tribbles off of Deep Space Nine and they have the problem all over again. So Tribbles could, you know, they could ebb and flow across time, I think, is the moral of the story here. But I do think the Tribbles are less important here. Let's let's just go with the Tribbles are less important as a device here. And it's more this episode is about we rarely see someone in the Star Trek universe, especially in Starfleet, being bad at their job. Yeah, say what you want to about, you know, uh, Barclay, but like he at least was sort of a genius at engineering. And throughout all the Barclay episodes, they're like, no, you're really good at what you do. You're just freakishly socially inept. And we run into Edward here, who is he's good at least in like he's able to think outside the box when it comes to genetic engineering. But in basically every other facet of his job, he is not a good employee. He's really Watching him in the meeting was really cringy. It was it was hard to watch because I think we've all seen that person in a meeting if you've worked in an office and probably a good portion of us have been that person in a meeting like, oh, I didn't know Mm. we were sharing. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And like, he definitely is like, I would not say he's going like full Jerry. I mean, he is actually, I think, the Jerry Gergich of uh, the Cabot, the really interesting waffle iron looking ship that Lucero and her crew serves on. But basically, this would be like an episode if Jerry Gergich was able to like cause this massive tsunami of paperwork in the Parks and Rec office that basically just like runs everybody out of the building. That's essentially the equivalent of this episode. And, you know, I spoke about it before how the escape artist felt very tonally different uh, when it came to comedy. And this was an even further jump, in my opinion. I think we went to warp here because, again, I, I invoke Judd Apatow's name. This really felt like almost like a, I don't want to invoke the Orville's name since I know they're sort of like a Star Trek competitor slash comparison in these parts. But this sort of felt like a Seth MacFarlane take on things where like it felt like a very modern comedy, quote unquote, cringy take on a Star Trek episode. Yeah, I think so. Especially the conversation they had where she said, this conversation is over. And he's like, yes. but I'm still talking. Yes. I'm this, still saying that words. screams of like Seth Rogen and Catherine Heigl in a room where they're just riffing off of one another and they keep the camera rolling. That I had that in my notes exactly. Yeah, it was also and I think the comparisons also uh, are inevitable to Archer because of the actor playing Edward <laughs> um, is H. John Benjamin. Although... To me, he's always Bob Belcher, especially like when he started going off about protein. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is a Bob's Burgers situation. And we're definitely getting a triple burger on the menu at Bob's Burgers sometime next season. But Mm. there was a very there's a very Archer sense to it where he is much like Sterling Archer. He thinks he is very, very good at his job and to the point where he knows more than anybody else in the room. And turns out he is actually not that great at his job. And that kind of that kind of hubris and entitlement is also very entertaining to watch in the Star Trek paradigm. Yeah, he put them into the danger zone. And yeah, I'll admit, Jess, I think that 
on paper, you look at this and you're like, okay, this seems a bit too against the grain of what we see from Star Trek. But for what it's worth, I could not stop laughing during this. And maybe it's just because, again, the the sensibilities to which I've sort of been acclimated, especially with modern day comedies like we just mentioned. But, you know, I wrote down so many lines like, you know, uh, H. John John Benjamin just has a way of sort of like uh, trailing off or not tripling off things like, oh, yeah, it was broken. Thank you for fixing it, by the way. It definitely was broken. Uh, him, as you mentioned, talking about how the nutritional value of the triple, how it's blood red underneath like a scallop. Uh, him deciding, you know, hearing that, oh, these creatures are intelligent, therefore it's immoral to eat them, and him set, coming up with a solution to genetically engineer them to all be brain damaged. Uh, <laughs> even though Tribbles are not exactly highly advanced to the point where he says one rolled off his desk and pretty much died. What yeah, did it for I died me? at that one. Yeah, and what did it for me was near the end when they sort of have a, you know, a, a meeting about what to do about this. The image of that guy walking through with this giant vacuum pneumatic tube hanging over his head and just sucking up tribbles. It's the suck it. Like David Wallace it, sold the suck it. Yeah. To Starfleet. I could not stop laughing at that image. And I think that's sort of like a microcosm of this episode is that like, this this is a really goofy short trek, and it actually might be one of the darker ones, considering it ends with a you know a space a shuttle getting shut a uh, ship getting shut down and becoming inoperable and somebody dying. But like it is very darkly comic in that regard. Yeah, I, I thought that it was totally consistent across the board, and if you have that sort of gallows humor, like the idea of the triple falling off the desk and dying instantly, and that being a good thing. I I think if that's your sense of humor, this is definitely this is definitely hitting the sweet spot. And this was by far my favorite of all of the short treks. So that should tell you something about my sense of humor. Yeah, I will say the one thing that did not gel with me completely was the Bing Crosby, Johnny Appleseed song. Because I was trying to remember, I, I don't think they had that in the TOS episode. So I'm a little confused as to why that got brought in. Well, I think they're I, I think it's more that they have this song about somebody that's um, creating a verdant forest of new life wherever he goes. But I hate it when they bring in 20th century music into the Star Trek universe for reasons I have ranted about at great length in the past. Well, uh, hold your breath until we get to a later installment of Short Treks uh, about that one. It was just just really interesting because, yeah, like you said, it it just it, it came out of nowhere. I mean, and I guess speaking of seed, I was personally a little confused as to the genetic engineering that was going on here because it seemed like everyone blanched at the idea that Edward mixed his own DNA with the Tribbles uh, to, you know, get this effect of essentially being born pregnant. I mean, should we be should we be going full bloom with our assumptions as to how Edward utilized his quote unquote genetic material? I just want the record to show that you're the one that brought that up. I true to my name, you know. I my my uh, brand shows like the dots on that Trill crew member who happened to show up for half a second. Yeah. P.S. Excited to see Trills. I'm I'm a big fan of Trills. Yeah, um, and I was wondering. I'm like, I wonder if that's like a past Dax person. And I was trying to do the math on it. I'm like, no, this is probably the Curzon life cycle. So it probably was not Curzon Dax. No, it would have been. No, don't don't make me do this because I I can't do it. Um, And actually, I I think Jadzia was the first one that was formally in Starfleet, although the first Dax host was there at the treaty that created the Federation. 
So I, oh boy. I, I highly recommend there's a great anthology series if you're super into trills. Um, it's called The Lives of Dax, and each chapter is about a different Dax host. Well, if the trills trill you, uh, be sure to check that out. Oh, oh boy, <laughs> that's that's bad, but um, not as bad as the road you were trying to take us down where we contemplated yeah. exactly how the human DNA got in the triple, because I think we are meant to put our minds there and be horrified and disgusted by it and also but also that's hilarious to contemplate um and also gross and terrible and yeah it's many things at once it's i i think great art inspires a broad spectrum of emotions well yeah so i guess on that note oddly enough i mean are we supposed to be sympathizing with Edward, are we supposed to feel like he's an idiot, like, you know, in the same way that Lucero does when she ends up addressing that Starfleet Council at the end of it? Again, this is a, it's, this is, you know, I think done purely for the sake of comedy, but I do wonder if it's trying to make us feel a certain way about the titular character. Well, I think, I don't think you are meant to like him, but I don't know. I went on the Star Trek subreddit to see, to take the temperature of the various short treks and the uniform opinion in the Star Trek subreddit was that this guy was better at his job than the show was giving him credit for. And Lucero was bad at her job and that we need to have more sympathy for Edward. And I'm like, wow, this is kind of Reddit in a nutshell. And I'm not going to take the opinions of any of these people seriously. <laughs> wow. Who knew? I, you know what? I guess we're now going to see the continuing adventures of Edward just screwing his way up across the galaxy. Actually, maybe I shouldn't use the word screwing and Edward in the same sentence. Yeah. Let, let's dial the bloom back about 15 to 20 percent there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but That's interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, what he did was genius. And I guess we have seen several times in Star Trek canon about someone suggests something, they get shot down by leadership, then still does it, and, you know, receives a slap on the wrist instead of what Edward got. Though he eventually, you know, in, even though he does get fired, and I guess we see what happens when uh, you get fired in Star Trek, or uh, the Edward way, which is just you lose your pants and your entire uniform. <laughs> I also do like the, uh, you know, we were wondering, I think, whether or not this time would use like the disco uniforms. Or are they going with the, the Enterprise uniforms, the red, blue and yellow? And it seems like this ship is going for an entirely new design of like uniform navy blue uniforms. Yeah, it was interesting, but I I quite liked it. I thought I thought it was interesting the way that each different kind of ship, like maybe this has to do with the fact that it's a research vessel and right. you have like combat vessels and you have like strategy vessels, diplomacy vessels, maybe everybody has a different sort of meditation on the central uniform concept. Because we also have seen in the past in the Star Trek universe, when they roll out a new uniform design, it doesn't happen instantaneously, even though they kind of have the technology where it could. It's like sometimes one ship is still wearing the old style uniforms while the other ship has gotten into the next wave. Yeah, so then I guess the question is, is this the new style that they're trying out? And do we think that because the Cabot just died as a research project, so did the prospects of these new uniforms, and that's why we never see them again. I mean, it could be, but we also don't spend a lot of time on research vessels. Like, I, mm. I don't think anybody is clamoring for the Star Trek research. I mean, they got people complain about the excessive amount of science in Discovery. I don't think they want more science. Um, I personally, I would watch it. I'd be here for it because I was enjoying all of the talk of experimentation and methodologies in discovery but i can see where there's a hard limit to how much of that the general public can take 
Yeah, to be fair, I think they could only, uh, you know, they can make FES science maybe work, but I think FES research would definitely not work. Yeah, it just gets too far into the weeds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, although any anybody who has pursued higher ed, especially like in a very small insular uh, environment, like your department, the smaller your department is, the better the drama. So I'm saying like Star Trek research vessel, there's a lot of room for interesting things to happen. Well, there's a lot of room in general, but the triples quickly filled it up. Yeah, although not as much room as there was on the Enterprise with that turbo lift. Like, what what kind of space-time were they bending in there? I don't know, man. I mean, if these triples possess the ability to, you know, essentially break the space-time continuum by being born pregnant, I feel like they can really do anything. I know we are going to f- talk about how powerful tardigrades are, but triples might trump them. And what if a what if it's uh what if a tardigrade and a triple splice their DNA? Oh, my God. I think that's going to be like the new Dominion. I feel like that's going to be the end of the universe as we know it. Yeah, that's going to be like um, it's going to be like the main room of the Cabot with the Tribbles exploding in every direction. But it's going to be the whole universe doing that. Yeah. Well, think about it. It's a creature that can instantly replicate by budding and also something that it can apparently travel through time instantaneously. Yeah, it, it, they are everywhere all at once. And then there's going to be an entire Star Trek series about going back in time to assassinate Edward so that it never happens. Yeah, yeah, it's it's there. Although I, I do think they they do take great pains to note that he dies at the end of this episode and that they just sort of sent the Tribbles off to the Klingons again. <laughs> but I think they left it open ended enough that if there was a real outcry to see Edward Larkin like as king of the Tribbles. They could make it happen or to see like how he got onto the Kaaba, you know, like, did he fail upwards uh, from being a Starfleet cadet where he ended up finding himself on this research vessel to begin with? Yeah, it's very interesting, but I think it does raise a good point that not everybody that you're going to run into. And I think it's the it's to the exact point that Captain Pike makes at the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. Not everyone is on your level. Yep. Uh, he also gives the advice, you know, don't show any weakness or they'll eat you alive, which he says he's kidding about. But uh, Edward does get eaten alive a bit uh, from the triples as well. So actually, they ended up being more prophetic words than he thought. I guess so. And I, I would I would argue that maybe maybe Lucero, had she been a little bit more forceful from the outset, like why did she let him go back to the lab? Yeah, I'm not sure. It, it seemed like for someone who, you know, usually or in some situations when people get, you know, uh, unceremoniously released from their job, usually, you know, they have to get escorted immediately off the premises. Seems like Edward was sort of just given like free reign to sort of roam about. I know that maybe things are different in space, but like you'd think you'd walk him to the transporter room and like beam him off immediately, right? I mean, that's that's what I would think. And, you know, if they're if they're too far from anything. You know, confine him to quarters. Don't let him yeah. back into the lab. Like, since at least send someone with him if he needs to, like, go pick up his plants or something. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, bring him to the brig and put one of those weird, like, low polygon video game masks over him, like we're going to see in this next one. <laughs> I love that thing. <laughs> All right. So I, th- I think we're pretty much we're closing the hatch on this one here and leaving all the tribbles behind. But there are tribbles in this episode as well. Or, no, we're skipping ahead. We're going to Ask Not next, right? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm fine if you if we skip Ask Not. Ask Not, I will admit, was my least favorite, just because, personally, I could kind of guess the twist halfway through this eight-minute short. 
Yeah, I feel like maybe Tribbles would have made this one better. <laughs> well, I think the issue was, so for those of you that might not remember or you haven't seen it, basically, uh, we get in media res. The one thing I do like about this that I like about some of these short tracks in general is we get very different title sequences for each one. Uh, you know, where this one starts here where we just get these ominous, like, close-ups and we hear this yellow alert that's going on, uh, on this, on this star base and then the wall explodes and then we get the title of Ask Not. But it turns out that there's this cadet Sidhu who's working on the star base and she's brought a prisoner in the form of Captain Pike who mutinied on the Enterprise and has been, uh, brought to, you know, I guess her being this unconventional jailer and he's trying to convince her to essentially let him go and let him get back to the mission at hand and surprise jess monsters inc style it turns out to just be a big drill that turns to be the uh, i guess the the final test for sidhu as she formally gets brought aboard the enterprise at the end of it a lot less screaming than monsters inc though yeah, then not as many robot kids, unfortunately, or evil plans being outed. I, I guess the reason why I was so suspicious about this being a drill is because, you know, we know so much about Anton Mount as Captain Pike, and this did not feel very Captain Pike-like to me, especially in that first half. You know, I feel like Captain Pike would not be somebody to try to use someone's husband as leverage to guilt them into freeing him. Yeah, and and then yet again, Mike, I think it's it's the same thing that happened in the previous short trek, where um, we have seen this play out in other Star Trek series, in other episodes, where we have had the situation of somebody being imprisoned wrongly and having to convince everybody that they're correct and everybody else is wrong, and then the right thing to do in that instance is to let them go and do their thing, and... Just the same as um, how we've seen a hundred times somebody go against direct orders and be correct and save everybody because they didn't listen to authority. And so it's it's funny that the moral here is kind of exactly the opposite as we've seen every success story in the Trek universe. Right. Yeah, because I think uh, Pike even outlines, you know, what she did right here, which was basically like, hey, I provided you with all these outs, but you made the hard decision. And, you know, quite literally, she holds him at phaser point when he tries to leave and seemed like she was about to pull the trigger before she realized that, no, the jig was up. Let's bring up candid camera. Yeah. And this was also like they do this to every cadet that joins the Enterprise. What what happened to the what happened to the Kobayashi Maru? This is deeply unethical, and at least people that are doing the Kobayashi Maru, they know they're in a simulation. Like, this is some Black Mirror-level stuff. Yeah, this is White Bear all over again, just, uh, you know, I guess in a less maniacal way. So, yeah, I guess, like, was she... I'm assuming then, were they on the Starbase, and they just faked a yellow alert and had this whole Pike situation brought up? Was she stationed there to begin with? Yeah, and how many people had to be in on this? Yeah, exactly. Like, do the people in the starbase like, all right, I guess we're just running this drill again. So, like, you're going to hear a yellow alert, but don't really. It's not really a yellow alert. This is just to test the the cadets before she ends up beaming onto the Enterprise. And also, I'm sure they still have the Internet in the 24th century. Um, This is going to get out. This is going to leak like you. You just go on to like uh, Enterprise you know, the subreddit of Enterprise Leaks and somebody is going to have said, you know, when you become a cadet and you go on to the ship, they're going to put you through this drill where you they pretend that you are taking care of the mutinied captain. And like, isn't the captain supposed to be captaining? How many cadets join the ship? 
on a weekly basis? And is he just like pretending to mutiny five times a week as new cadets arrive? Mm, I wonder then in that case, do you uh, think Starfleet might get busted for hazing if it ends up leaking out, you know, the merciless things that number one is making these cadets do? Or maybe this is just what they do with command cadets. Mm. Like maybe for science officers, they pretend to strand them in an elevator. Well, you know, she wanted to be an engineer and she ended up in engineering. So I guess this is the engineering test. Yeah, this is the engineering mm. test. Um, but also, this is a weird thing to make your engineers do. Yeah, this is a little different than uh, when Wesley Crusher had to face off against those three other cadets with like, hey, uh, hurry, something else is happening. You need to like balance out these levels really quick on this computer. I will also say this had probably the weirdest ending of all six short tricks where, you know, great, Sidhu's now going to be working on the Enterprise. She's in the, the engine room and she turns to, you know, Pike and she says, hey, just so I know, was the blaster I used loaded, aka, like, could I have shot and killed you if it went that far? And he just goes, see you around, <laughs> and just walks away. Like, that's not a laugh line. You were just implying, like, yes, you could have shot and killed me. I could have died as a result of this drill. So we, don't, we shouldn't close on that. Don't iris to credits. Yeah, so I guess we're given to understand now that Captain Pike spends most of his time as captain of the Enterprise playing human Russian roulette with new recruits. That's the only way he can live now, Jess. He's experienced so much of the universe that he has to just hold his life at stake every single day in a cadet's hands. He's got to put out cigarettes on his arm just to feel something. Yeah, what if Sidhu, you know, throws down the blaster being like, I don't want to do this. It goes off and then he gets shot and killed. Yeah, it, it could go wrong so many ways. And I can imagine you could just, like, rig it up with, like, you know, uh, a false charge or something so that if she does shoot, then, you know, the lights come up like, oh, you did it. You know, you would have killed me to prove, you know, to (laughs) to stick with your command to Starfleet. Welcome aboard. Don't worry, I'm alive. This isn't a dream. You didn't kill anybody. The blood's not on your hands. balloons fall from the ceiling in this universe? (laughs) I think so. Like, I want to make this like a, a, yeah, like a publisher's clearinghouse type of surprise, you know? Because they're doing something, they're putting them in a very stressful, horrible situation. And I understand. Also, I wonder when this took place because, you know, there's a reference to war. Pike says, I know this type of challenge may seem extreme, maybe even inhumane, but war is both of those things. So maybe this was sort of like in the midst of Discovery Season 1, you know, uh, post-Michael Burnham screwing things up when the Klingons and the Federation were at war. Yeah, but even if the thing's not loaded, like how awkward is that then if you make the choice to shoot the captain? And then it's like, oh, it wasn't loaded. And now he has to be your captain and he's your boss. And you have to look him in the eye every day knowing that you almost killed him. I mean, to be fair, again, if he does this a number of times, then he's theoretically filled a ship with those people. Yeah. And you're like, you're like sitting in the mess hall with all the other cadets. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I killed him, too. Yeah, me, too. Yeah, yeah it's all about a bunch of pike shooters on the Enterprise. Yeah, that, that brown noser over there. He made the right choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, this was this was a weird one, in my opinion. Again, there were still interesting things in there. My God, do I love Anson Mound as Pike. He just is so much fun. But I will say that this was a weird use of him, and just a, a weird short trek in general. It was. It really, it felt very, it felt very incomplete. It was not an idea that had been workshopped enough. 
Yeah, I agree. Like, I think it was interesting that it was so short, but yet only had one quirk and seat to it. And then we just like went right to the Enterprise. Like, he didn't even explain what was going on. He just said, come with me. And then they beamed aboard the Enterprise. So, I mean, we were really taken along for a very quick ride. Though I think, I guess it would be interesting if we get more insight as to maybe how current captains interact with Starfleet cadets, if that's apparently a thing. Yeah, and we get it. We get it across the Star Trek universe in various points. Like, I think we did talk a little bit. There's an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where you have um, Picard spending a lot of time with Cadet Wesley. Mm. So I think it's not unheard of, but it's also, it's like, that's not a dynamic I need to see very much. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, again, we, we saw a, a bits piece with it through Wesley's eyes in TNG, but I guess maybe in terms of like current crew interactions with, with neophytes, it seems like neither Picard or Discovery are going to focus on that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we'll see something like that in the lower decks. Um, we'll see what tests they had to go through. Maybe they like shot Pike in the foot or something. And then that puts them sort of on the lower rung of things. Yeah. Like they don't ever get to be on the bridge because, you know, you have a pretty broad spectrum of ranks on the bridge of any given Star Trek series. And so all the people that don't get to be on the bridge, like maybe those are the people that failed this stupid test. Yeah, I also feel bad because I feel like of the myriad like warp core failures that have happened on the Enterprise, I feel like poor Sidhu probably ended up passing in one of them just due to being in that engine room, which is definitely the most dangerous place in the ship. Yeah, for real. Like engineering is not the job you want. Yeah, exactly. Though, no, I guess she didn't have Scotty, right? Because I, I remember number one made reference to like somebody in engineering uh, not being Montgomery Scott. So maybe that's why he got booted is because he was killing too many cadets. Maybe so. Maybe it was Edward. <laughs> <laughs> well, Edward, Edward is a protein specialist. So I don't know how that would translate to working with the warp core, but I also don't know how it translates to climatology. So it's anybody's guess it's science science okay so i think i think we could close the we can close the book on ask not i think we've we've dissected the premise to death Mm. and let's go let's go next to looney tunes in space yeah ephraim and dot which first of all interesting that they gave them names and didn't tell us the names uh, i believe the robot is called dot because i think its name is like dot-7 or something I, I it took me a little while to read up i guess if we remember jess from the uh, season two finale of star trek discovery and we're like hey where did all those little robots come from these are one of the little robots and yeah we're revisiting our old friend the tardigrade who we had an experience since uh since poor stamets basically like became a tardigrade human hybrid in disco season one yeah, he put um, tardigrade DNA in him. Oh, boy. The, not the Edward way, luckily. Well, we still don't know what the Edward way is, but we can only guess. Yeah, so this was interesting. You know, this was the first of two animated short treks, which I'm very happy they went. I mean, I guess this is probably the last t- time we've seen animation since Star Trek the Animated Series, right? All the way back in the 70s. Yeah, and the look and feel of this is very much Star Trek the Animated Series. Like, I watched yes. that. I watched this, and I was, like, right back there. It yes, was t- very much like... It was very much like 1960s Looney Tunes crossed with Star Trek the Animated Series. It was very physical. Uh, you know, uh, this episode holds a place in my heart because it was written by Crystal Vestry and Anthony Murrinville, but... 
probably most importantly, at least from my purview, yeah. it was directed and apparently scored as well because, of course, by Michael Giacchino, who has done so much fantastic work, but uh, I personally know and love him best from his work across Lost, which I'm currently recapping on Down the Hatch with Josh Begler. So it was cool to see him, you know, go from the island into space here. And I mean, from a directional perspective, he had a lot of flashy action physical sequences to direct. And I thought, you know, they went well, they flowed smoothly, which sometimes even animation can't if you don't have the right director. Yeah, and certainly I have gained a new appreciation for Michael Giacchino just by listening to Down the Hatch, because you bring him up so often. And I think I had not registered that he was also the director of the episode, although the scoring was very distinct. Um, And yeah, he really, the music is almost its own character in this piece because it, it pushes the action so well. And the way that it all fits together is just really fun to watch. And it it is like the best of uh, that style of animation. And, the music he has done a really great job of kind of mimicking that that sort of that sort of looney tunes feel of like the meditations on the classical music and using the different instruments to simulate the different types of movement Right. And that's the interesting thing is especially starting off, I'm going to get sort of like this interesting black and white scientific reel to show exactly what a tardigrade is, sort of like a reminder for those that might not remember or it those who like have an Dharma ex- initiative. Yep, exactly. Marvin Candle comes out and introduces it. Uh, but then everything turns to color. It's interesting. It has these sort of like cell shaded graphics to it. This is a deep pull, but I was reminded of like the Legend of Zelda, the Wind Waker in terms of like just the very cartoony look of it all. And I thought it was going to be entirely silent, but Jess, it wasn't. And I'm <laughs> very intrigued to hear from you about what was your reaction when the tardigrade hits the window and we hear archival footage from TOS with Khan and McCoy and Spock and Kirk? That was so strange. And for a second, like if they had not used such iconic scenes, I would have thought I was right back in the animated series. But then you look and it's like very obviously like some of the most important scenes of the entire Star Trek universe. And I have seen some people that are much deeper in that than I am pointing out that these are chronologically all out of order, but it's a tardigrade. It travels from time and space. Like who knows when those eggs were left and when they were picked up again, it could have happened. One could have happened before the other. It's a tardigrade. Um, So that was my thought. Uh, It was, it was really fun. I think it was like, that's an Easter egg. Like that's how you do an Easter egg. I, and I hope that these, particular scenes like i hope i'm not meant to be taking notes on what exactly is happening in these particular scenes because they have some bearing on what we're going to see in the actual series later on i hope that was just a fun nod to the legacy yeah and i mean it was so tos centric i mean like you said i don't think we should take it as a line because they very much brought up in the beginning about how tardigrades are able to essentially skip through time and space using the mycelial network which is why they were really focusing on using the spore drive in a discovery but in terms of the easter eggs uh a pile of them much like tardigrade eggs so obviously we had space seed with uh, the reference to Khan. we had the naked time which was when sulu had that weird was like intoxically invigorated and was threatening to sword fight everybody yeah we have a we have a children's book about uh about spock that makes heavy reference to space to the naked time 
And then you have what I thought was my favorite sequence of this entire thing when the the tardigrade is tailing the Enterprise and they just flow continuously through all these really great images, whether it be uh, the big green phantom hand from Apollo and who mourns for Adonis, uh, the cylindrical phallic looking planet killer from the Doomsday Machine, <laughs> the aforementioned Tholian web, which looks like something out of Tron with like the laser dodecahedron, uh, the probably the like quintessential example of how weird TOS is the giant Abraham Lincoln sitting in the chair from the episode The Savage Curtain but not just episodes Jess then we go to the movies we get like the showdown between uh, the Reliant and the Enterprise from Wrath of Khan and then surprise surprise here comes uh, Christopher Lloyd and his Klingon uh, bird of prey you know appearing at a cloak and then the Enterprise deciding to trick him and self-destruct at the end of Search for Spock yeah, and that that's really the really interesting thing is someone that has that deep knowledge and appreciation of it could point the, could pick all of those individual things out and somebody that's kind of had it as a presence in their life over time could pick one or two of the things out and I don't think it lessens your enjoyment. I think you can appreciate it on that very deep level or you can also be like, "Oh, hey, I recognize that thing and that thing" and kind of assume the other things have something to do with it. But I love how much is there for the super duper fans to grab at. Not only that, Jess, do you know who the narrator of this short was? Yes, I only because I looked it up. I did not know it off the top of my head. And Mike, if you did know it off the top of your head, I don't think we can podcast together anymore because no, that's just I don't way beyond. Though, ironically enough, you know, Jesse and I were texting bef- uh, earlier this week about how you discovered transparent aluminum and how, you know, Star Trek Four is becoming more of a reality. Hey, and I, I guess- didn't discover it. I just learned it was a thing. No, you invented it. You put the <laughs> patent in. But I guess we had it on the brain because the narrator of Ephraim and Dot is none other than Kirk Thatcher, who played the young hooligan with the boombox on the bus during Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home. It is my favorite of all of the Star Trek movies, and I'm so pleased that this is like the Easter egg to end all Easter eggs. I mean, do you think they like sought him out or do you think he like went in and was like, hey, you know, I've worked on Star Trek. So let me like try to get my foot back in the door here. I think he has been a presence. I think his early role as a punk was not necessarily related to the long career he has had as a producer and television director so i think he's out there and to get back into the star trek universe was not a big deal for him because he's fairly well known i think Mm. So the one big canonical question I have from this, because like you said, I think it was just a very fun, cartoony lark, especially from a physical comedy perspective. But I was trying to remember if we had known that tardigrades before this were able to transcend time as well through the mycelial network and so that makes me wonder with discovery being millennia into the future now and you're trying to figure out how do they get back to the timeline they were at could it all come back to the spore drive once more i think it pretty much has to i think i would imagine so unless another wormhole opens up again yeah, I mean, a wormhole could open up. There's, they got all kinds of ways to travel around in time. Think of how many times people have traveled in time in the Star Trek universe. They'll yeah, think of speaking of the voyage home, just slingshot around the sun. Yeah, totally. So I, I think that's less of a concern, but I think this may well be setting it up for that to be the way that they do it. 
Yeah. So I think, again, uh, you know, I think Alex Kurtzman said specifically Ephraim and Dot and the girl who made the stars were going to be connected to Discovery in new and interesting ways. And I feel like, you know, on uh, the surface level, it would just be, oh, there were tardigrades in Discovery season one. There's a tardigrade here. But if I'm looking at it a little deeper, I personally think that I could very much see it all coming back again to that tardigrade DNA. And if it is indeed able to ride the mycelial network to go through various blips in the TOS timeline, what's to stop Discovery from eventually getting back to where it came from? Yeah, I mean, the mycelial network is already enabling you to mess with space. And you almost <laughs> and, and have also to. bring people back to life by rebuilding them. There is that. So I, I think... It's already broken so many laws of physics that to break one more is really not going to be any big thing for it. And there's also this idea of the baby tardigrades as well. I know that, again, this is a cartoon. I don't know how canonical it is, but there it could be also this idea of like other tardigrades, you know, populating the universe, especially if they all go off on adventures like apparently they do as one ramshackle family at the end of this. Yeah, that's a spinoff series I would watch, by the way. Baby tardigrades? Yeah, baby tardigrades. Maybe you know, they can, that's what we, they can out with. Maybe it works for Baby Yoda, right? Well, I was going to say if they're going like with a Mandalorian style spinoff, I think Baby Tardigrade could have been the next big thing. Totally, I, I think the next Star Trek series we're going to get is going to be like this this rogue gunslinger going across the universe with a baby tardigrade. And listen, unlike Yoda, tardigrades are real, so it has that above him too. <laughs> Definitely have that. Uh, I just I, I love it every time I discover that something is real. I, I did know tardigrades were real before discovery, but, you know, transparent aluminum, real. And, you know, Paul Stamets, a real guy who studies yeah. spores. Uh, and thank you again, Jess, for inventing that transparent aluminum. Really going to come in handy when we're constructing that whale tank. Yeah, I mean, everybody can just assume that I invented it. They don't need to know that this that this old Scottish man came in and like picked up my computer mouse and started talking to it. And next thing I know, I have this formula. <laughs> well, speaking of fabricated stories, uh, should we move on to our other animated short here? Yeah, I think I think we are. I think we've done enough. I think that's all, folks, where the <laughs> Efferman Dot cartoon is concerned. I am. I'm really excited to talk about this one. I think this might be my favorite just because I think... And no offense to Michael Giacchino, but this is directed by Alatunde uh, Onsami, who had done a bunch of Star Trek uh, disco episodes. I think he, I think he's a, might be a co-EP as well. And I think this was the most beautiful short Trek, maybe one of the most beautiful Star Trek stories from a visual perspective I have seen in some time. Yeah, I, I really loved it as well, and I feel like there's such it's a broader spectrum of appeal that this has. I think compared to most of the rest of Star Trek, like I, I almost wanted to bring my three-year-old son in and have him watch it, but it was, some of it got a little scary. So I thought, you know, I probably have to hold on to it for another year or two, but not much longer because it feels like something kids could love. I feel like people that are not super sci-fi people could love it. It's just, it's such a visually stunning piece of, it's a visually stunning piece of Star Trek as well as well animated and a self-contained story that mm. I, appeals to a lot of people, I think. 
and a story within a story as well. Very uh, Princess Bride. But yeah, I mean, it's universal because even though Star Trek takes place in the future, Jess, we go back to the past here. And it's so interesting because, you know, uh, we have what turns out to be young Michael Burnham being told a story by her father. And yes, that is Kenrick Green returning as Mike. I'm going to name my daughter after me. Burnham uh, telling the story as he appeared in Star Trek Discovery. And it's really interesting because I was uh, re-watching just the first episode of Season 2 of Disco because I had remembered that Michael had told a very similar story. And it's not exactly the same. Uh, Michael's story in Disco is about how uh, a girl in Africa dug her hands into ash and threw it into the sky to create the Milky Way. This is a bit more of the hero's journey to it, but I do find it very interesting and, again, very well connected to the character of Michael Burnham, who this young girl turns out to be. Yeah, can, can we back up a second and talk about Kendrick Green? Yeah. Uh, married to Sonequa Martin-Green in real life? Yes, which, again, makes things... I mean, it's better now in this version when it's an animated form and Sonequa Martin-Green is not voicing young Michael Burnham, but still very interesting casting. They're like, oh, you want to bring your husband on? Great, but he's going to play your dad. Well, it's not the first time that they have that she has given him a smaller part in a series in which she's the star. Uh, this has also happened in The Walking Dead. So every time I see Kenrick Green, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's it's the guy from The Walking Dead. Oh, right. Because Sonequa Barton Green was also in The Walking Dead. <laughs> and they kind of it comes they come as a package deal. And I think they're both great. So I'm not mad at it. Yeah, and to be fair, he sort of gets his own little solo piece here, where, you know, we do have a little bit of cute, precocious Michael Burnham interrupting, a la Fred Savage, once more in The Princess Bride. <laughs> but this is pretty much Ken McGreen's uh, story here, and he does it well. He has a lot of gravitas to it. He's got a great voice. I think he's, it's a great voice for storytelling. Yeah, and it's also really interesting connecting this. Like, this almost serves as a prologue to the Michael Burnham that we end up meeting in Star Trek Discovery, especially this idea of, you know, fear and shadow and finding your your inner light, especially like the the dark side for lack of a better term of this story as well and what like broke my heart at the very end of it is, you know, when she says like I love you daddy and you're like, "Oh man, I wonder it's how wonder how long it is until he gets like gunned down, you know, on Centauri Alpha by the Klingons and before she what you know, when is the last time she ends up saying that? And it really informs her character though, where despite being through this immense amount of darkness, she finds her own sense of light. And I feel like Michael Burnham is one of the bravest characters on Star Trek Discovery. And you'd have to imagine that this little pep talk slash fable at least informs that attitude. Yeah, I think I think they de- it definitely does, and I I kind of that hit on that hit me as well, realizing that it can't be she's old enough in this that it can't be that long, and she doesn't have that much time left with him, and it's like it's testament to how well formed Michael Burnham is as a character because I think dead parents is not something that is necessarily a new and revolutionary plot device in the Star Trek world, but I think the way that it hits you over and over again, like the gravity of her loss and how she has contended with that loss and how it's informed who she is as a person. I think that is just testament to how well the stories are told on discovery. 
I just love the fact that they went so far back to tell this because, again, it, it's something that really harkens to us. We've grown up hearing all these fables, especially of uh, the more, you know, aboriginal or, uh, you know, indigenous tribes about, you know, how the moon got in the sky or, you know, uh, why sand is coarse and dry. And I, I always love the mythology behind that. And again, I love bringing it into the future all these times later, but still teaching this universal truth, essentially, of, you know, you can escape the shadows, but you're not looking for the the outer light, you're looking for the inner light. And I also love the double entendre of the girl who made the stars. It's like, you know, she's given this little capsule full of light from this alien, even though I guess this technically is not first contact, because this is not the formal first contact. But when she opens it up, from an illusory perspective, the, the the sky fills with stars, but you could also argue it's more so that this was a culture that didn't really see the stars and maybe regarded them as something else, and she opened up their eyes to what was in front of them. And so I, I really like that sort of uh, fantasy and reality encompassed in one. Yeah, that's a much that's a much deeper analysis than I went, but that's fantastic. I I really love that as well. And here yeah, I. I I want to talk about the alien, though. I think we have to talk about the alien. <laughs> yeah. I think we have to talk about... Um, this is an interesting... I, I have to imagine we're going to see this alien again. Yeah. I think I, that's the like most literal connection that there's going to be between these two universes. I mean, yeah, you'd have to imagine... Because I'm trying to remember... Look, I know they introduce Star Trek species all the time, so I'm sure we've experienced, even to the Kelpians variety of, like, the, the cephalopod octopus-like creatures, but I can't remember seeing something like that in the past. I don't think we have. I, I, would, I would bank on the fact that we're going to see an alien looking like this somewhere in the future timeline in Discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that could be interesting if it was sort of like remaining docile for all those years. And that could also be a big connection point for Michael Burnham of this was a story my dad told me. You know, I thought it was just a myth, but it turns out that no, these creatures actually do exist and they made contact with this girl and now they're going to help us. Yeah, and also sort of the idea, I think this is a very wrinkle in time-esque idea of there being Mm. like this species that's kind of so far advanced from the, the sentient species that inhabit our universe that they know everything including how to solve the problem you're in but they also want to make it clear that your problem is very tiny in the grand scheme of things and you can't even comprehend what is really happening in the world yeah it's interesting because that problem also really uh, mirrored for me another discovery episode the second episode of season two when they beam down to that community of people who uh, the angel red angel had rescued from world war three who had sort of uh, forbade any sort of technology and weren't aware of everything around them and they really mentally weighed the consequences of like okay do we tell them what's happening and show them that their reality or do we instead sort of let them live you know in their sort of uh, blinded existence and that that's sort of the the whole moral quandary of the prime directive that Spock brings up in in Q and A. So again, it's a nice little like nugget of really heady issues that Star Trek's already delving into with just this alien encounter of showing them that there is a larger world out there that they didn't even realize. Yeah, and that's something that they have grappled with many times over. Uh, we just talked about Picard going down to a planet and being mistaken for a god. Mm-hmm. And having to take their spiritual leader up and being like, yeah, okay, I'm not a god, but look at how much bigger your world is. 
All right, I'm calling it now. We find out in Discovery Season 3 that that octopus alien was Michael Burnham. <laughs> is Michael Burnham in the suit again? Yeah, Michael Burnham just loves Yeah, The Red Angel suit has changed into like a purple octopus, and now Michael's just constantly traveling through time at this point, much like her mother did. It, it's the Quantum Leap spinoff I never knew I needed. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be for it. Yeah, all right. Um, it's just like the suit gets an upgrade. Yeah, exactly. Now you can sort of warp the things and just give away random beams of life to people at random points of time. Yep. It's like, you know, one day you'll be helping out people on a distant planet. Another time you'll go back 100,000 centuries and you'll throw some light up into the sky and make people realize that the true stars were them all along. Yeah. And help defend them from a giant ass snake. Yep. The giant, the giant snake. Um, I feel like this was maybe the one the one part I would quibble in this animation. Like most of the rest of it was really beautiful and really immersive. And then they had this snake that looks like it looks like a reject from like the Harry Potter universe. It reminded me of the James and the Giant Peach movie when apparently James's parents got killed by rhinos. And I remember there was that image of like the rhino stampeding through the clouds that haunted this poor kid's mind. That's what that sort of reminded me of. I guess more so like the fantastical Mufasa variety than like a literal snake existing in the darkness. Yeah, Dollar Store Nagini can just get right out of here. I, <laughs> I felt like I needed something more to embody the pathos of a people yeah well it's dollar, do you mean dollar store nagini the person or dollar store nagini the snake because apparently they're one in the same apparently they're one in the same but um I, I in this specific instance i think i mean dollar store nagini the snake <laughs> oh man i i really love this one i think this might be my favorite one i i just it was one of those ones where like you said, like I would want to show it to people just i think from a visual perspective and from a thematic perspective it's something that it's a story that I never thought Star Trek would be able to tell, especially in such a shortened variety. And I think that they really pulled it off. And it, it makes me hopeful that they'll be able to do more stuff like this, whether it's, you know, going a, a bit further back in time and telling their stories and relating them to the future or just using different animation styles. Because this was even so different from Ephraim and Dot. I just love that they were given the latitude to do these things with these short treks because... The previous set of short tracks, by and large, were like, you can go and like put some of the same actors on the set and do some riffs on what we've already seen. And these just go off in some totally new and different directions that I think it's a big leap forward for Star Trek at large. Yeah, I would totally agree. And I absolutely love it. Because again, Star Trek is a place, and I think also... That we've seen an advent of so many different types of voices and so many different ways of putting out content and filming content and creating content that we shouldn't be living in the past in that regard. You know, we should be fully encompassing it. And, you know, I think, again, going back to Star Wars, The Mandalorian was a great step forward in how they were able to tell stories when people were maybe getting a bit restless with the way they usually tell them. And Star Trek is showing it here as well. You know, I would be totally fine if we bought back like a Star Trek, the animated series type of thing, even if it was just like animated shorts around the Star Trek universe, because these two shorts have convinced me that there are ways to do that. Yeah, and I think having shorts is a really I think that's an extra great idea because we're kind of because of the way that TV is now, we don't have to be confined to 22 minutes or 42 minutes. We can tell a story that's as long or short as it needs to be. And I think having like some little bite-sized chunks of animation that's beautifully done 
and captures a specific mood while still being fully part of this universe, I think that could be really special and really fun. All right. Well, I guess on that note, as David Bowie's Heroes plays in, should that we talk was not about David Bowie's Heroes? That was somebody <laughs> else's interpretation of David Bowie's Heroes. Well, just like it's somebody else's interpretation of Mars, I guess we should, we should talk about the one who, at the time of recording this, only dropped a couple of days beforehand, the last short trek of season two, Children of Mars, a.k.a. backdoor prequel to Picard. And I, I'm just going to take another minute to talk about this, because this is a narrative device that needs to GTFO immediately, like stop using it everywhere is taking an iconic song from the 70s or 80s and like dropping all of the instrumentation out of it and just having it slowed super way down with a really breathy voice to add drama to a scene stop doing that it's mm. it's tired it's been done so many times it's like there's like whole albums full of this like breathy sad pared down acoustic versions of pop songs that you can drop into movie trailers to make it feel sad and at this point i feel like it's emotionally manipulative i think the i think this short would have worked a lot better without it yeah it was really interesting watching it drop in because to me it then felt like almost like a a, a viral youtube video you know, or like a music video where they take a cover of a song and make a story around it. Because I thought the way that they started off this was so interesting where, you know, we get an introduction of Kima. We get an introduce of Lil. Those are the two girls' names who both go to this. They both live on Mars, but they go to school in San Francisco, I believe. And the rest of it is pretty much silent, which I think is a very interesting choice. That being said, I think the journey that they show was really well done. But I will certainly admit, as you've talked about, I think the minute we hear that song, it does evoke a certain mood, but the mood more so distracts you from what's going on with, wait, why are they playing Heroes right now? Yeah, it would have been better if it had been a song that maybe everybody doesn't know. Mm. I think that would have worked better. Like you could, You could certainly find something that's less well known that doesn't make you think of an icon while you're watching this. And I think that sort of took me out of it as well. Well, and I'm also trying to think like, why was it heroes? You know, I'm trying to think from a lyrical perspective, especially given how the short ends, why specifically this song? Yeah, that's the other thing. And we could analyze the lyrics and try to find a parallel there, but, I'm to be I, honest, if we're going with other road songs, give me like Mad World above Heroes when it comes to applicability. Oh, God, Mad World might have been where this trope originated. Yeah, exactly. I think the way they used it in Donnie Darko is like all of a sudden that was how everybody wanted to tell their story. Um, I think the only thing I can figure is that they um, at the end of this episode, when they are being hit with this news that their parents are dead, they have to be heroes to each other. Maybe mm. question mark or or it's sort of like again I keep going back to the Star Wars example but sort of like maybe they're alluding to you know it's it's something in the echoes of the end of uh, the Last Jedi of like okay now we have to look to the next generation they're going to be the heroes they're hit with this terrible news but they're going to work to a better future um, I will say you know covers aside I thought this was a really really interestingly done story and it, it really hit me in a way where those really great twists do where once you know the way that things happen 
and you look at the entire arc of the short, it just becomes that much better seeing like the entire journey of these two characters and where it ends up being and what that says about the tragedy that occurs. Yeah, it is extraordinarily well acted as well. And I think Mm. they do so much with so little. Um, There's almost no dialogue in the entire thing. Like there's enough dialogue to set up who these people are at the beginning of the of the piece. And then pretty much conversation drops out and the rest of it is told visually in facial expressions and gestures. Um, And it's really it brings up emotions that I think are universal, even though it's a Star Trek piece. It doesn't feel like. It's super Star Trekky. Yeah. And I love the fact that there aren't words because it's also this idea of like there being a fundamental miscommunication between the two. Like if you're looking at the two of them, it looks like Kima and Lil cannot be different enough from just the introductions that we get from them. Kima seems very peppy and happy. You know, she we're not entirely sure what species she is. Uh, apparently, she ha- has pimples and a long tongue, as does her mom. And then you have Lil, who's sort of like uh, the alphabet to her Glinda of just a little more dour. <laughs> she's in this bad situation where it's clear that, like, you know, she's sort of like the military brat. Her dad keeps moving around and she doesn't like it. And, you know, the, these two do not see eye to eye or tongue to tongue, and we don't see them ever talking about it. And you wonder how much can be resolved from the two of them talking, but it's everything from, you know, brushing past one another to a full-out fist fight that happens in the hallway, and those girls can throw a punch. I just want to say that. Um, and then that that's what makes, again, that last shot so beautiful is the fact that it's another form of physical contact but rather than being intrusive or violent it is so reconciling and emotional of like look i've got you we're in this together which again comes such a long way from even like five minutes beforehand yeah it's true and i think that's a lot of that is down to the actors like i think in the hands of a less experienced and talented pair of actors you would not get the same effect and i want to call out especially sadie monroe is somebody uh, she plays lil in this and she's somebody i spent the entire thing i was driving me crazy like where have i seen her before and she's played that same kind of impetuous angry teenager um and it took me the entire thing i had to finally google it to figure out out but there's a canadian sitcom called working moms that is on Netflix that I very much enjoyed. And she played almost that exact same character, but like a much more troublemaky character than mm. that. Um, and I highly recommend I this totally, totally different, totally, totally and genre different, but working moms is a very well done uh, sitcom. If that's a thing that you enjoy and it's got that kind of dark sensibility to it. Uh, but her work in there is kind of, she brings that same sort of attitude to it and that sort of that sort of defiance that I think works so well with this character here. And I think it's perfect casting in that in that regard. And I love and was a little surprised that, you know, the script comes from Kirsten Beyer and Jenny Lumet and Alex Kurtzman, who are all working on modern Star Trek stuff. Alex Kurtzman obviously being the grand overseer of things, because, I mean, obviously the implications of the end have a direct link to Picard. But I think this is them really stamping what we have sort of been beating the entire podcast, a drum essentially saying like, hey, you might think this is a completely different type of Star Trek story, but it's still going 
going to be part of this universe. You know, the this is a story we haven't seen before. These are kids attending a school who might be different as different can be and still facing adolescent troubles that we might face in the 21st century. But there are big moments and tragedies that can bring people of all different creeds and races and values together. And it's in those moments when you, you just reach out to grab someone, anyone, no matter who they may be. And those are the moments when you realize just how much finding a connection is so valuable in this universe. And obviously, and, you know, it'll segue perfectly into our next podcast, but, you know, we're starting to see why Admiral Picard may no longer be Admiral Picard. Yeah, there's a little hint of it, and it's almost something you have to pause to really pay attention to. But um, this attack on Mars, I think we need to talk a little bit about how what we think might have happened there and what has gone wrong and how does that feed into where Picard is. Right. So uh, just to describe, because again, there's what I think that short does really well is it really just introduces like some small visual elements that doesn't underline what's happening. And like, but we know, for example, it's first contact gay day, which, you know, again, was uh, heralded in first contact the, the first time that the Earth made contact with an alien species. Uh, Mars is getting attacked. We couldn't or at least when I was breaking down the Picard trailer, looking through it, I couldn't recognize the ships because those, those shots I've seen in the trailer, they're not, you know, uh, birds of prey. They're not, uh, they're not Romulan warbirds or anything like that. What I did over here that I thought was super interesting, or at least seeing like that lower third when Picard was on screen was that they said the attack was from quote unquote rogue synths. And my big guess, Jess, is that we're sort of getting on Mars a Skynet-esque situation where they appropriated some data-esque Android information to create an army of synthesized people, and they rose up and attacked people on Mars. And that's where, you know, Picard finds himself decommissioned, and maybe that's where he ends up turning to data to try to solve this Android problem. I think you're 100% on the money, Mike. And... Also, think a little bit about the other characters that we know to be showing up in Picard from the greater Star Trek universe. Data is going to be a big part of the series. Um, exactly how big, we're not sure. But having Data there and then also having Hugh of Borg and Seven of Nine as characters who show up in this universe. And we know canonically that they are they have had diplomatic roles and have very been very much on the forefront of deciding like, where does man stop and machine begin? And knowing that those are going to be things that they have meditated on a lot throughout their diplomatic careers and knowing that they're going to show up in this series, this conversation is going to come up. It's going to be a lot more of this measure of a man style trial of, you know, how responsible are machines and how sentient are they and how culpable are they? That has to play into this. You have to imagine yeah. this is all connected. Right. And this idea of like, okay, you know, we thought they were under our control. Now they're not. And it, like you said, it goes back to this idea of like, can you keep it under your control? Is it your play thing or is it a, uh, does it have human emotions and should we respect those? Because I can imagine that in that case where the ships that were attacking them, you know, is that, them taking control of federation ships or is this another thing like the borg like an offshoot of synthesized people who rebelled against the federation and formed their own society but that's my leading theory right now as to who led the attack on mars and you'd have to imagine that 
Picard, you know, since he was the one giving the talking head, he takes some responsibility for it. I don't know if he's going to resign from Starfleet or if he's going to get demoted or dismissed from Starfleet as a result. But you have to imagine this was an inciting incident in some way, shape or form that's going to put him on that vineyard. Yeah, I think that's I think that's where we leave off and where Picard is going to resume. And I think it's a very interesting way of telling this. And it's sort of for those of us that mostly know Picard as this kind of infallible leader who almost always makes the right decision and to see him fail that hard would be a very interesting place to pick him back up. Yeah. I totally agree because he's probably at his lowest point then, even lower than when he was appropriated into a Borg and, uh, you know, basically made to kill people because this is a case where he really, in a manner of speaking, does have blood on his hands. If people do look up to him and he let this attack slip by, it's something he has to pay for personally. And whether he's personally seeking penance for that or he's forced to seek penance for that is something that's going to be very interesting. But I love the surprise. And I love, like we're talking about right now, how that really jumpstarts our thinking as to putting us in the headspace of Jean-Luc Picard right now. And that's going to be a really interesting place to start a series just because that's kind of how Star Trek Discovery also started. You had Michael Burnham committing mutiny and kicking off the entire Klingon war. And having that blood on her hands and having to contend with that, I think it will be interesting to compare and contrast if that is indeed where we're going. Yeah, it'd be like if they took the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery and made them a short trek or like a a Star Trek movie that serves as the prequel to it, you know? Yeah, yeah, for real. And it will also be an interesting way to kind of get our bearings on this Picard as a character is to have that have that touchstone of how did michael burnham handle similar circumstances and that being said like you mentioned before because this is not the most uh, highly viewed star trek property at the moment i'd say it's a hundred percent chance that they're going to have at least one flashback to this time period to show exactly what the attack on mars was instead of just letting it sort of uh you know remain assumed due to the basis of children of mars it's true. And I, I do think, while I do think you could pick up Picard and not have seen this, I think, but I think this will also give you a more rounded sense of what actually went down going in. Yeah, and I think it, I think it's just a good tone setter. You know, like it got me really excited, uh, and I mean it should because Jess, we are mere weeks away from this actually happening. Yeah, I can't believe it, it really snuck up on me. Like the, yeah. it's it's almost on us. Yeah, January has gone by super quickly. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have time to talk about Picard like we did at the end of the podcast here. We're going to have a full Picard preview podcast coming to your feed next. Uh, that should hopefully be dropping on January 16th, one week before Picard drops in our feeds, our respective streaming services on January 23rd. But yeah, we have a lot to talk about. As I talked about, I've, I've sort of been looking at the trailers. Uh, we're going to be focusing a lot on the new characters, the returning characters, some possible plot lines we might see. I think this gave us a big hint as to who and where Picard is mentally at this moment, but just there is so much undiscovered country, for lack of a better term. <laughs> yeah, um, but the less said about the undiscovered country, the better. Yeah, uh, luckily we know where everyone's genitals are located on their body, I think. <laughs> 
Yeah, or or do we? I, I I feel like I feel like the Tribbles have raised a lot of questions. Yeah, exactly. Who knows? Who knows? If you're born pregnant, I don't even want to know. Yeah, I, I really let let's not talk about Tribble genitals, um, especially like and let's also not talk about Tribbles as breakfast cereal. Yeah, let's stay away from those two things. Any other Tribble talk, I think, is valued, especially on social media. Yeah, I, or you know, maybe you and I will be the most surprised of all when. The Picard series turns out to be Picard fighting Tribbles all day, every day. <laughs> or like Data pulls uh, off his suit and reveals that he's just a bunch of Tribbles stacked on on top of each other like the little rascals. And then the series becomes uh, a meditation on who is sentient and who is truly like, is it a moral issue if you eat this sentient thing that is a bunch a bunch of tribbles stacked on top of each other in a data suit you know is that reprehensible and what happens if it falls off the desk is it just gonna die <laughs> yeah exactly you have to kill kill the head tribble and the rest will fall off the desk <laughs> yeah I, I okay i i guess i'm back on board with this but then <laughs> like if, you know can the tribble be truly culpable for its sins if it's been genetically engineered mm, that's to true be okay. kind of- can- can you put yeah. the triple on trial and be like, you know, is it just due to its nature from Edward creating it or is it truly evil through its deeds? Yeah. Or did they sort of, you know, dumb it down a little bit with the genetic engineering? Yeah. Well, listen, uh, that was apparently what th- Edward thought the order was. So I would not be surprised. Yeah. Boy, that's just an ethical quagmire, isn't it? Oh, boy. Well, so people check these check these short tricks out if you haven't already. They're they're really a lot of fun. Why did you listen to us talk about them for an hour and a half? You haven't watched them yet. I don't know. People people have listened for other reasons. Uh, but I really even if you know what happens, like I even the one that I like the least still had some stuff of value to it. And at at its best, it really is a lot of fun and really makes you rethink where we could go with Star Trek as a franchise. And considering how it's a populist field, much like the Tribbles popping off, seems like there's a new Star Trek franchise being announced every month or so at this rate it's a lot of exciting prospects and it means makes me feel like we're in good hands for right now yeah it's definitely there are a lot of exciting directions it could go in and i think this set of short treks certainly highlights that and you know it's going to take you less time to watch all these short treks than you just took listening to us uh, that's a true podcast nature right jess and 100 percent. so Mike, I think we're, it's about time to wrap this all up. Um, I want to remind everybody that we have um, a main feed of post-show recaps. Um, you can go to postshowrecaps.com and see all of the great scripted television we are covering. Um, right now, I know that uh, Mike is doing a lengthy Lost rewatch with Josh Wiggler in which they are going episode by episode and down the hatch and they are almost at the end of the season i believe yes so we just posted our penultimate one and speaking of lengthy spoiler alert uh you are going to get in your feed nearly five and a half hours next week going through the entire finale three-part finale of season one of lost exodus one of my favorite episodes not only of lost but of television had so much fun closing it out with josh but yeah we we send that raff off uh, with a lot of words, so be sure to check that out. Also, getting into some Survivor coverage as well, uh, with Season 40 being just around the corner, including some Australian Survivor stuff, some coverage of The Circle as well. Uh, so lot, lots of stuff in both the reality TV and scripted TV spheres over the course of January. 
yeah, I, I've done a circle round table myself. It's it's a very interesting show. I think we're having we're both having a lot of fun watching it. Um, and a little bit of survivor content drop that Mike and I were both a part of, which I thought was a very good time. Um, and I'm going to be writing some articles on primetimer.com about every TV thing that crosses my mind. And in fact, I've got a Picard piece dropping this week. So Ooh. check that out. I'm I mean, excited to read it. Do you want to give a preview as to what the topic is? I, mean, I don't know that you're going to enjoy it that much, Mike, because most of the groundwork um, was already done in our previous podcast together regarding Picard. So there's that. Um, it's mostly we're just I'm just going to be breaking down some of the most Picardy episodes of Star Trek the Next Generation. If you want to start rewatching a few to get yourself ready for the new season. It's just like that episode cause and effect. We're just sort of reliving the same conversation over and over again, just in different mediums. Yeah, but you know, if I can if I can use it uh, lucratively in more than one platform, I would be a fool not to. Absolutely, get that latinum. That's right. It's all about the slips and the strips. Yeah, uh, and I also do want to mention, as I talked about in the beginning, uh, I know some people had asked about a dedicated Star Trek podcast feed. We do have that. Uh, go to postshowrecaps.com slash Star Trek or search for uh, Star Trek Post Show Recaps in your podcatcher of choice and feel free to subscribe and leave us a rating and review, especially as we get into the first few episodes of Picard. That's going to be super important when it comes to being seen as we decloak like a Klingon bird of prey. So uh, be sure to do that. And we always appreciate your guys' thoughts, especially as we start segueing out of short treks and into Picard proper. Yeah, I'd really love to know uh, what your expectations are for the series, um, what you think you're most looking forward to, what you're afraid might happen. Uh, just take all your thoughts and fears about Star Trek and you can shoot them our way. We, we would love to hear them. And you can follow us on the social media is probably the best way to engage us in this conversation. Um, I am on the Twitter at Haymaker Hattie. And I am on the Twitter at a Mike Bloom type. We would love to hear from you. We want to hear all your thoughts about Picard. Um and all of your thoughts about the Trek universe in general, because I think we're on the precipice of something really special and interesting happening. So all of that, any parting thoughts, Mike? No, just uh, make sure, keep your feeds attuned to uh, January 16th is when our Picard preview should be up. And if you have any th- questions you want to ask us about Picard through the various marketing materials, feel free to reach out to us. We'll be recording probably uh, the night before. So make sure by Wednesday the 15th, if you have any thoughts, make sure to keep them sent to us via social media or any other channel. Yep, that's if you want them included on the podcast, but uh, obviously, any time of day or night, we are here for your Star Trek thoughts. Mm-hmm. All right, so thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and uh, Star Trek Picard preview coverage kicks off next week. We'll see you then. Take care, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.